Now, the parable of the unjust steward has been greatly misunderstood. And one of the reasons, of course, is it looks like our Lord is commending a crook here. And he is a crook, but that's contrary to the way we look at it. Well, it's just naturally assumed that anyone that the Lord Jesus mentioned in a parable is a hero. And he's certainly an example of the noblest character and the highest caliber of individual. Well, if you have that assumption, then prepare to make a change today, because you'd certainly have difficulty with this parable. This man is a crook, just out-and-out crook. And I've uh, attempted to run a series one summer on rascals of revelation, rogues of the written word, scoundrels of Scripture, thieves of theology, bad men of the Bible, and crooks of Christianity. And there are a lot of them, friends, and this man's one of them. Now, we've called attention to this before, that Luke gives parables by contrasts. That is, many of his parables are, and he's the only one who does that. And actually, most of the parables are parables by comparison. In fact, that's the meaning of a parable. Para means by the side of, and bole is something thrown by the side of it. Bolo is where we get our word ball, something that's thrown or put down by the side of something to measure it. Well, sometimes that's done in contrast, and that's true in this particular case. Now, our Lord reaches out into the world, and he takes a man as an example who follows the principles of the world. And we are told in the Word of God, in fact, we are warned very carefully about that, that if the world hate you, ye know that it hated me before it hated you. If ye were of the world, the world would love his own. But because you're not of the world, but I've chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. A child of God doesn't belong to this world, and he doesn't live by the principles of the things of this world. And again, Paul in Romans 12:2 says, "...be not conformed to this world." And Satan's called the God of this world. And Paul in Galatians speaks of the fact that the Lord Jesus not only died to save us, but he might deliver us right now from this present evil world. And we're told, love not the world, the things that are in the world. Now, the world is in which there is the law of life. And this man operates by that law. You know what the first commandment is of the world today? Self-preservation is the first law of nature. A shady deal is winked at. Questionable practice is countenanced today. A clever crook is commended by the world. This is the world of Bonnie and Clyde. This is the world of where a man like Billy Solestis can operate. The law is on the side of the crook today and the criminal. Every man, we are told, according to the law, is considered innocent until he's proven guilty. And do you know the Word of God takes the opposite approach? God says that you're guilty until you're proven innocent. You say, you don't mean that. I sure do. He says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. You can never become innocent, but you can certainly become justified before God and there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. And when you trust Christ, you're justified by faith. 
And that's the only way in the world we can be justified. I had a professor in a prep school I went to. It was near Vanderbilt University, and it was a school for rich boys. I went there because I was studying for the ministry, and they let preachers, boys studying for the ministry, go there for no tuition at all. And he always began every year by saying, I consider all of you as young gentlemen. <laughs> and that crowd he had there, he knew they weren't gentlemen. And the interesting thing is, he never treated us like gentlemen. Treated us like anything else but gentlemen. But that's what he said anyway. This is the world that we live in. Now, will you notice the man now, and I'll introduce him to you. He said unto his disciples, There was a certain rich man, and I don't know how he got rich, but he was rich, which had a steward, and the same was accused unto him that he had wasted his goods. Now, a steward is a man that had charge of a man's goods. Abraham had a steward, you remember, had charge of all of his possessions. In fact, he went on the trip over to Haran to get a bride for his son Isaac. And David had a steward, you'll recall, in First Chronicles 28.1. And he had the responsibility and control of the chattels, all the physical possessions of the man, and actually of his children. And Paul says that it's required in a steward that a man be found faithful. This man would correspond to what you'd call the president of a corporation. He had charge of it. And he was guilty of malfeasance in office, misappropriation of funds. It's like the president of a bank who absconds with all of the funds, by the way. It's like it said of a Texan, an oil man down in Texas. He wrote a check and it said the bank bounced, not the check. And I tell you, some banks have bounced when the president left with everything also. And this is the man that's before. He wasted his goods. And he called him, and he said unto him, How is it that I hear this of thee? Give an account of thy stewardship, for thou mayest be no longer steward. In other words, give us an annual report, or bring your report up to date. And the day of reckoning had come for this man. He had to give an account. And he had a signet ring of the master that he used. He was the paymaster. And so what he did, instead of getting up a financial statement, what he did was, then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? <laughs> now notice this. He's going to use the law of the world. Self-preservation is the first law of life. And that'll excuse anything. What shall I do? For my Lord taketh away from me the stewardship. I cannot dig. This was a man that his hands were soft. And he wasn't accustomed to work out doors. He couldn't be a common laborer, he thought. I cannot dig. And then he says, to beg, I am ashamed. It makes you smile to read that. He was ashamed to beg, but he wasn't ashamed to steal. And I think there are a lot of folk like that too, by the way. And the very interesting thing is that he couldn't do either one of those, but then notice what he says. I cannot dig to beg. I am ashamed. I am resolved what to do, that when I am put out of the stewardship, that they may receive me into their houses. Now, this man, he did not repent. He had no regret or remorse at all. 
he's crooked. He's called clever by the world. He's not able to work. He had no training for that. His age probably was against him. And he's not going to beg. He had a spark of pride, but he won't be ashamed to steal. He won't be ashamed to be dishonest. And what actually he did more than that which was crooked. You notice what he did here? So he called every one of his Lord's debtors unto him, and he said to the first, How much owest thou unto my Lord? He said, A hundred measures of oil. And he said unto him, Take thy bill, sit down, write fifty. Actually, what he's saying is, How much do you owe my master? He said, Well, about a hundred barrels of oil. Well, he said, It costs a dollar a barrel now. I tell you what we'll do. We'll just let you have it for fifty cents a barrel. Half, you see. And notice what else he did. He said to him, just sit down right, fifty. He said to another, and how much owest thou? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. And he said unto him, take thy bill and write four score. I don't know why he didn't give this fellow the discount he gave the other one, but he said, make yours eighty cents a bushel instead of a dollar. And he began as a crook. He ends a crook. He's just a bigger crook at the end than he was at the very beginning, and he's not punished. You know, these TV programs of violence, they give us an excuse. Crime does not pay, and that they're trying to teach that. You don't always get the message, but it's supposed to be there. I have news for you. It paid this man to be crooked. He's not punished. The man fell among thieves, and were the thieves ever caught? Our Lord never did tell us about that, did he? He didn't give us a story and say crime does not pay. Now, the amazing thing here is that this fellow is willing to do this. And what happens? Then said he to another, and how much owest thou? And he said, a hundred measures of wheat. Take thy bill, write four score. I've been over that. Now, let me read verse 8. And the Lord commended the unjust steward, because he had done wisely. For the children of this world are in their generation wiser than the children of light. Now, this is misunderstood. This is a shocking statement. Who made it? Well, this man that's the rich man. I guess the way he got rich was using the same kind of principles. And what he says, he's done wisely. Wisely how? According to the principles of the world. And this is the world that hates Christ. It makes its own rules. It's the law of the asphalt jungle. It's dog-eat-dog. And this certain rich man... I think, obviously, he was a crook. And the worldly Lord, he commended his worldly steward for his worldly wisdom according to his worldly dealings. But men are not measured by how they got their money today, but by what they have. My, that man's a millionaire. They never stop and ask how he got it. And our Lord says here, and notice this, for this is very important to see here, in their generation. Notice that. The Lord commended the unjust steward because he had done wisely. Now, the Lord's comment on that, for the children of this world are in their generation. According to their principle, they're wiser than the children of light. But I say unto you, make to yourselves friends of the mammon of unrighteousness. And that's the most shocking and startling statement of all. And it's the relationship of the believer to the mammon of unrighteousness. What's that? Riches, money. Money's not evil in itself. 
It's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money. Money is what you would call amoral or unmoral. Money, it can be spiritual. Our Lord said, gather for yourselves treasure in heaven. We're to make friends of the mammon of unrighteousness, that when ye fail, that is, when you come to the end of the life, they may receive you into everlasting habitations. That is what you do with your money. He that is faithful in that which is least is faithful also in much. And he that is unjust in the least is unjust in much. Now notice, if therefore ye have not been faithful in the unrighteous mammon, who will commit to your trust the true riches? And if ye have not been faithful in that which is another man's, who shall give you that which is your own? Now this is a tremendous thing that he's saying here. We are stewards of that which is material. You and I actually own nothing. We're responsible to God. It's not only how much we give, but where we give. And that's exactly what he's saying here. He says, "...the men of this world are wiser than the children of light." Now, I for years was in downtown Los Angeles at a church down there that's near the financial district. And I've watched these men many of them through the years that would go into a broker's office where you have the stock markets displayed up there, and they sit down there in the morning and they figure it out. And you know those men, they won't invest in any stock unless they think it's going up, or they play the market. And there's some that do that. Well, there's a Christian man told me that he played the market, and that's where he made his money. He would not accept an office in the church because he said, that's the way I made my money, and I just don't think I ought to accept an office in the church. I don't know how he reconciled the fact that he was a member of the church, but nevertheless, he did that. And he was clever in the making of money. Now, how many Christians today are smart in the use of the mammon of unrighteousness, money, to use it to gather spiritual wealth? Does some brother come along and tell a sob story and move you and you give to something that actually is not winning people to Christ nor building them up in the faith nor really reaching people with the gospel? Are you giving to something like that? My friend, God will hold you responsible for giving to that which is wrong. I hear people say, well, if you don't give, God will hold you responsible. I think there are going to be more people held responsible for giving than for those who didn't give because they're giving to the wrong thing. They're giving to that which is not getting a job done for God. I get so weary today of people say, I gave to this program or I gave to this work, and I happen to know that that particular thing is as wrong as it could be, that it's run just for the self-interest of some individual. I know one organization that 90% of what's given to it stays in this country to support a tremendous overhead that keeps men driving Cadillac automobiles over here. But my, how pitiful it's made to look, the plea that they make. Why, my friend, that means if you want to give $10 to help overseas somewhere, you'd have to give $100 to get $10 over there. I say that there's something wrong with Christians the way they give. And there wouldn't be these things that are wrong if Christians were as smart as these men of the world are. I watched them down here. I watched one man in particular. This man never would invest in anything 
lest he was sure about it. My, he was smart. Smart money, they called it, by the way. How much smart money do you have? Are you really using it today to get the Word of God out? This is a tremendous parable that our Lord is giving here. And he says, do you think God's going to trust you with heavenly riches if today you're not using that which he's given you down here? And actually, therefore, money's spiritual, is it not? And you're responsible not only for giving, but the way that you give. This is a glorious, wonderful parable. Now he says, verse 13, "...no servant can serve two masters." For either he'll hate the one, love the other, else he'll hold to the one, despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so what are you doing with your money, friends? Are you making any money? And what are you doing with it? That's a pertinent question, you see. Using it for mammon, the things of the world? Well, if you are, well, the one you're serving, that's your master. Whoever you're serving, you can't serve God and mammon both. Now, the Pharisees, they got under conviction on this one. The Pharisees also, who were covetous, heard all these things, and they derided him. He said unto them, Ye are they which justify yourselves before men, but God knoweth your hearts. That's a stinger, let me tell you. God knows your heart, and he knows mine. We can put up a front with each other, but not with God. For that which is highly esteemed among men is abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John, since that time, the kingdom of God is preached, and every man presseth into it. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass than one tittle of the law to fail. God judges on that kind of basis, you see. You and I can't measure up to it. Now, here is a verse of Scripture that if this is the only verse we had, there'd be no such thing as divorce, of course. That is for a Christian. Whoso putteth away his wife, and marrieth another, committeth adultery. And whoso marrieth her that is put away from her husband, committeth adultery. Now, that must be compared with the 19th chapter of Matthew, and also 1 Corinthians, the 7th chapter. You need to take all of the Scripture on a particular theme, and not just lift out one verse here. This, I think, our Lord's given to these men who are under law in that day, who were making light of the law of God. Now we come here to another great parable that only Dr. Luke gives. And if you've already discovered, have you not, that Dr. Luke gives some wonderful parables. And this is no exception. This is a parable that is amazing. We call it the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Now this is going to lead me to say something that I think is very important. I do not think that the Lord Jesus ever made up a parable. I think that every one of them he drew from real life. I think he always got right down to the nitty-gritty, right where people live, and he just reached out and drew these parables in. When he says, Behold, a sower went forth to sow, those people there had seen a hundred sowers on a hundred hills in that land sowing seed. They knew exactly what he's talking about. And I think that all of these... Now, this is an unusual parable, and uh, make sure that you and I understand that he's not making this one up. He gives us the name of one of the individual, a beggar named Lazarus. And therefore, he wouldn't give the name of somebody that didn't exist. So what we have here is a parable... And it's a wonderful parable, by the way. Let me begin reading. 
there was a certain rich man which was clothed in purple and fine linen, and he fared sumptuously every day. Now, a certain rich man. And this is a tremendous story, by the way, that he's giving to us here. And this rich man that he's talking about here is a rich man that lived without God, and he died without God. And it moves into a realm that you and I know nothing about. This parable, our Lord, will pass from this world to the next without making any break at all. There's no hocus-pocus here, acracadabra. Although the curtain between this life and the next life and this doorway of death, we know so little about it, yet our Lord bridged it here without any strain or stress at all. Now, when man is left to his own imagination, he seeks out many inventions, and he'd make unlimited speculation and wildest dreams. And today he does the most fantastic schemes that are imaginable. Imagine freezing the body of Lenin in order to try to make him come to life or make him look lifelike. Well, man using his imagination is in trouble. And in this parable, we stand before the iron curtain of death, and we cannot penetrate it. Now, the important thing, what does the Word of God say? There were only three men that ever spoke with authority on the other side of death. One is the Lord Jesus, of course, and the other is John. And then also, I should say, Paul. Paul was caught up to the third heaven. Now, we find that this rich man here, and we need to recognize that he was a rich man that really put on the dog. That's the picture that you have here. He fared sumptuously every day. He put on the dog, and the poor man, the dogs licked his sores. I'm reading. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, and desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Now, here are two men at the opposite ends of the social ladder and the financial ladder, and I suppose every other ladder. One represents the very top echelon of riches, and the other represents the lowest extreme of poverty. I do not think you could have two men any farther apart than these two men. And this poor man was dependent on the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. He never was invited to sit at the table, but he was one that had to be kept in a menial place. And we find that the dogs came and licked his sores. That is certainly the very depths of the terrible degradation and despair that this poor man is in. Now, we read here that this is their condition in this life. And I'm sure had you lived in that town, you might have got the impression that that poor man dressed in rags didn't have very much in the way of any spiritual discernment or spiritual riches. I'm sure all of us would have written him off. And then, on the other hand, there's this rich man, 
And I'm sure that he had several buildings around named after him. I'm of the opinion that there's one of them called the Rich Memorial. Probably it could have been a church. It could have been a school. It could have been a mission enterprise. I'm of the opinion that this man had a wonderful name in the town that these two men lived in. And this is all that men saw. On the outward side, there's this rich man, and believe me, he was clothed in purple, and he fared sumptuously, and that means he put on the dog. The poor beggar, why, the dogs licked his sowers. Now, that is a picture of abject poverty of Lazarus, and it's a picture of, I suppose, supreme riches. You just couldn't have two men any farther apart. But now our Lord just comes right to the door of death and passes over it, frankly, as if nothing had really happened. And as far as he's concerned, why, it was just that way. Now you'll notice it says here, "...it came to pass that the beggar died." And that is all. He just died. No funeral. They just took his body out and threw it over into Gehenna. That was the place where they threw the bodies in that day of the poor. But that's not what happened to the rich man. Well, let me finish what happened to the poor man. That's what happened to the body. But the minute he stepped through the doorway of death, there were angels that were his pallbearers, and he was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died, and he was buried. The poor man wasn't even buried, you see. He was just thrown over there in the valley of Gehenna. And this rich man, oh, did he have a funeral. And did that preacher that day push him right into heaven? My friend, he pushed him all the way to the top place in heaven. Only thing is, that's not the direction the man went. The preacher got the directions mixed up. And we read, And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. Now, there's some things we need to say about this. The word here is not really the word for hell. Actually, hell is a place that has not been opened up to do business yet. You do not find that until you get to the conclusion of the book of Revelation. And to begin with, the devil's not the first one there. The Antichrist is, and the false prophet, they will be put there first. But so far, they haven't even appeared in the earth. So that place is not open yet. But there was a place where they went when they died, and that was called in the Old Testament, Sheol. Now, the New Testament word that's used here is Hades, and it is the word that's synonymous with Sheol. It just simply means the unseen world. And I'm of the opinion we can come to some conclusion about it if we look at the way that it's been used back in the Old Testament. In Psalm 16:10, the word Sheol is used, and it says, for thou wilt not leave my soul in hell. Well, that's a faulted translation for us. It had a meaning years ago, but not for us today, because we think of only one place. And the word that's used here is Sheol. It's where the dead go. And neither wilt thou suffer thy holy one to see corruption. And this was applied, of course, 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. First of all, then, we probably should give a definition of what death is. Death is separation. It never means extinction. Adam, the day he ate of the tree, he died. But physically, he didn't die until about 900 and some odd years later. But he was separated from God that day. Death means separation. The Lord Jesus speaks of it in that. A man, though he were dead, yet shall he live if he hears him. Well, that means a man separated by sin from God. And people are dead while they live. Paul said to the Ephesians, "...ye were dead in trespasses and sins, separated from God." And the place where you find a great many dead people, I get rather amused. They talk about certain spots or really live spots at night. Well, if you want to see all the zombies and all the dead people, look in on these nightclubs, friends. Look in on these joints. They are there. And the reason that they're trying to beat the drums and stir up the music and get the beat and play it cool and drink all they can and take the drugs is because they're dead and they want to live. That's the whole thing about it. Now, there is a second death, that's spiritual death, and that's eternal separation from God. Now, at physical death, the soul of man, the spirit of man, that doesn't end it. It doesn't end it really for the body because the body becomes inert and lifeless because the person is moved out, but the body is put into the grave and the elements go right back to the dirt. Dust thou art to dust, shalt thou return. And you can't keep it from being that way, friends. And therefore, death means separation. Now at death, what happened? Why, they left their body here and the body of that poor man's thrown over in Gehenna. But that man, the minute he stepped over, angels who were there to take him right in the bosom of Abraham, you see. But when the rich man died, what happened to him? He went to the place of torment. That is the side of Sheol, or the side of Hades, where the lost go. And now our Lord makes that very clear here and I think probably we ought to notice another passage of Scripture, and that's over in Acts 2, 27. And I'd like to read that. "...because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell..." And that's Hades there. So you see, Hades and Sheol are the same word. And we're told over in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 55, "...O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory?" And that's Hades again, you see. That's where, in the Old Testament, the lost went to a place of torment, and the saved went to a place called here, our Lord labeled it, Abraham's bosom. Now, will you notice, though, our Lord reveals something here that we need to note. And in hell he lift up his eyes. This is the rich man. Being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off, and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me, and send Lazarus, that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise 
Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted, and thou art tormented. Now, the rich man didn't go to the place of torment because he was rich, and the poor man didn't go to Abraham's bosom because he was poor. But certainly their status had changed, and it was changed because there was in the heart of these men. And that's exactly what our Lord has been saying through this entire section. You can't judge by the outward appearance, the old cliché. You can't judge a book by its cover. That's a bromide I'm sure we've all heard. Now, will you notice, there's some other things that are revealed here that we would not know otherwise if our Lord did not reveal them. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receiveth thy good things, and likewise Lazarus evil things, but now he's comforted, and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed. Now, there is a great gulf fixed. The body of believers today go into the grave, return to the dust. But the Spirit returns to God, goes into his presence, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Where do the lost go? They go to the place of torment. And when it says our Lord descended into hell, he descended into the paradise section, and he took that and took it into God's presence. And the day is coming when Hades will be cast into the lake of fire. Men will no longer go there at all. You see, the body is merely our physical house in which we live today. Death, we move out of these old houses. I have been preaching for years that... The modern method of burial is pagan and heathen, of tempting to cremate a body. I do not think that is Christian at all. The Greeks cremated, the Egyptians embalmed. The modern Parsi puts them in a hammock, let the birds pick the bones. The Aztec digs a hole and drops them in it. The Hindus cremate and scatter the ashes in the Ganges. Well, you can do anything you want to with this old house after we move out. Even the word cemetery is a word that's quite interesting. It's a place where you put the body of your loved ones. It's a house like an inn or a motel. That's where you put the body of your loved one, and you put them there, and the body's asleep. But the spirit goes immediately. It's absent from the body present with the Lord. Heaven's a place, friends, and the moment that you die, you're either going there or to the place where you ultimately will be judged and then cast into the lake of fire. But the point is that God never intended human beings to go there. It was made for the devil and his angels. You have to choose that yourself, you see. And there's a great gulf fixed. You can't go, he makes it clear, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. In other words, you make your decision in this life, friend. You don't get a second chance after this life. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou would send him to my father's house, for I have five brethren that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. Now listen to this. Abraham saith unto him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, 
they'll repent. Now, that's what a great many people think. He said unto him, listen to this, "...if they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead." And I think our Lord must have smiled when he gave this part of it, the end of this parable, because there's one that has come back from the dead, and he's that one. And they don't believe him anymore, and they believe Moses and the prophets. He was certainly accurate there. Now we come to chapter 17, and in this we have some things that we can pass over rather hurriedly. He gives them a lesson here in forgiveness. He said unto the disciples, It's impossible, but that offenses will come, but woe unto him through whom they come. It were better for him that a millstone were hanged about his neck and be cast into the sea than that he should offend one of these little ones. That is a severe thing that he said. I'll be honest with you. I think that I'd rather be most any person than one who's selling drugs to these young people today. I honestly believe the punishment of a person like that will be worse than any other. I can't think of anything worse than that. To cause a little one to offend. There are going to be some parents today. A man asked me once, he said, you made the statement that there's something worse than going to hell. And there is. You know, the thing that's worse than going to hell is to go to hell and have a son say, to you, Dad, I'm here because I followed you. May I say to you, that's the worst thing that can happen to any person. Now, he is very severe here. There are those that talk about the gentle Jesus. Read some of these passages, and you'll find out how gentle he really was. He was gentle. He was with those children, but not for those who offended them. And now he gives a parable here, verse 7, "...but which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he's come from the field, go and sit down to meet, and will not rather send him, make ready wherewith I may sup and gird thyself and serve me till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not. And let me make an application of that right here. There are those today that think that because they say they try to follow the Sermon on the Mount, they are a good neighbor, and they try to love people. They don't really measure up, but they say that just the same. And they think someday God's going to pat them on the back and say, Oh, what a nice little boy are you, like that little boy that he reached in his thumb and pulled out a plum, and he said, What a smart boy am I. And may I say to you, friends, if you kept the Ten Commandments and if you did keep the Sermon on the Mount, which you do not, but if you did, you'd only do what you're supposed to do. Do you think that you get salvation for that? Why, my friend... That's what you're supposed to do as a creature of God. We need to recognize that salvation is a gift, and you don't work for it at all. And these are things that you're supposed to do. Then he gave the parable of the ten lepers. Not a parable. It's something actually happened. It came to pass as he went to Jerusalem that he passed through the midst of Samaria and Galilee. And you see now he's drawing near there. And let me just lift this one out. 
And as he entered into a certain village, there met him ten men that were lepers, which stood afar off. And they lifted up their voices and said, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And when he saw them, he said unto them, Go show yourself to the priests. And it came to pass that as they went, they were cleansed. And one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God. And he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. And again, the Pharisees winced at that one. And Jesus answering said, Were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? There are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. And he said unto him, Arise, go thy way, thy faith hath made thee whole. In other words, his sins are forgiven. The others were healed, but not saved. That's an interesting thing. This man, because he came back. You know that today, thankfulness is that which must be in a Christian's heart. Why do you go to church on Sunday? Do you go there to worship God and to thank Him? Well, that's part of your worship is to thank Him. And that's about the only thing that you and I can give God is our thanksgiving, just to thank Him. How wonderful it is. We're to even make our requests with thanksgiving unto God. Everything should be done with thanksgiving, and we ought to have a thankful heart toward Him. What a tremendous thing this is. Then he speaks of the fact that the kingdom of God cometh not with observation, neither shall they say, Lo, here or there, for behold, the kingdom of God's within you. Now, who's he talking to? Well, when he was demanded of the Pharisees when the kingdom of God should come. Now, he's not saying the kingdom of God's inside those Pharisees. I'm sure you don't believe that. What he's saying, the kingdom is in their midst in the person of Christ. He was right there in their midst. That's what he's saying here. Now, we are told in this last part of this chapter, and I'm not going into it because we've had this before, and we'll have it again, and that has to do with the fact that he's coming. He says, verse 29, "...but the same day that Lot went out of Sodom, it rained fire and brimstone from heaven, and destroyed them all. Even thus shall it be in the day when the Son of Man is revealed. And that's when he comes to this earth to set up his kingdom. They are told here that there will be no warning given to them. The whole thought is that they should be ready at any moment because he might come. And that, of course, is true for the believer today that we might be taken out at any time. Now, as we come to the 18th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, we've come, by the way, to a very wonderful portion of the Word of God. And I want to say just this word about him personally at this time, and I hope you will not misunderstand me. I believe that he was God manifest in the flesh. But I also believe that he was not any less God because he was man. But on the other hand, I believe that he was not any more man because he was God. I think he was a perfect man, a real man. I think very frankly, had you been there in that day, you would have enjoyed his company. I think it would have been a real privilege to have been in his company and to have heard his laughter 
I don't like pictures of him at all. But I never saw a picture of him laughing, and I think he laughed many times. We're coming to an incident that I'm confident that a great many smiled when he talked to them about what he's going to talk to them in this particular section here. My, this is a very wonderful incident that he's going to give us here, and it's on prayer, by the way. And this is very important, but our Lord was so human. <laughs> You'd have loved him to have known him. You would have been in his presence and just had the best time that you ever had. You know certain human beings down here. You love to be with them. You love their company. I know that there are several preachers. I love to be with them. They sharpen my wits and my mental powers. I get rather sleepy mentally unless I have somebody to sharpen me. And I love to be with these brethren. And they're wholesome man. They are men that you enjoy to be with. And one of them, my, when he's up preaching, he sounds so pompous and serious, but he's a real human being, and he tells some of the funniest jokes I've ever listened to. Our Lord was good at that. Will you follow me now in chapter 18? He spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint. Now, he's given the other side of prayer. Before, he said that you don't have to storm the gates of heaven and knock the door down to get God to hear you. But he also saying here, don't be discouraged in your prayer life and just keep plugging at it. I think that we just need to keep praying. That's the reason I urge people to pray for me. Just keep praying. I want God to intervene. My, how wonderful it is to have him intervene. Now, listen to him, because this is a good one. Saying, there was in the city a judge which feared not God, neither regarded man. Typical politician, you see. We've got a lot of them just like this today. And we've got a lot of judges like this. They feared not God, neither regarded man. Everybody, I think, smiled, because in that day, I think they knew who the judge was. And in our day, I have a notion you know who the judge is also. Well, let's read on. That was a widow in that city, and she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. This poor widow, you know, she came, brought her case to this judge. And he would not for a while, but afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her, lest by continual coming she weary me. And avenge her means give her justice. Make sure she's given justice in the courts. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And now he draws from that this lesson. And shall not God avenge his own elect? Won't he protect his own which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with him? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find the faith on the earth. Now, I want to go back and look at this parable, because this parable is a great one. It's a wonderful one. And I hope you won't mind if I paraphrase just a little here, because I think we need to do that. You remember last time he'd been talking about the days of Noah in the days of Lot and Sodom and Gomorrah. 
You know, we live in a day when there's turmoil and trouble and crisis and criticism, doubt and disaster. There has been Vietnam. There has been the marches and the protests and the college campuses and the slums and the streets. And there's only two alternatives for you today, friends. Either you're going to faint or you're going to pray. And someone gave this little graffiti, if your knees knock together, kneel on them. That was in a churchyard in London during the Blitz. Now, prayer is the attitude of the life. It's the very essence of the life. And it's more than just uttering words. It's more than that. It is to long for the ultimate, to strive for the far-off goal, to long for the will of God. It's not just a Sunday morning to toss it off lightly, thy will be done. Do you really want the will of God? Now, this parable reveals persistence is rewarded. And what he's giving here is a parable by contrast. Now, God is no unjust judge. But the parable's about an unjust judge. He's a typical politician. And this poor widow, she came to him and she said, I'm having trouble. I can't get justice in the lower courts and I've appealed to you and I wonder if you wouldn't help me. And he sort of looked up her record and frankly, she didn't carry any weight in her community. She didn't count for any votes, you see. She couldn't get him any votes when he ran for office. He could pass her by. There are a lot of politicians like that. In fact, I don't know about you, but I'm very weary of these men that at the time that they're running for office, and some of them seem to be running for office quite a bit of the time, they're always talking about the public, and they're talking about you and me, the common man, and how they long to help us, and how they long to do something for us. And all that I've done is I've just kept been voting for men that would keep raising my taxes. They're not helping me any. They just raise more taxes to build more schools, to burn them down. I'm tired of that. I don't know about you, but they're always talking about that. They got my interest at heart. I found out they're after my vote. And then when they get in office, they forget all about me. I couldn't even get in through the fifth secretary in order to see them. And that was this poor widow's situation. She didn't carry very much weight, and she couldn't get in there to see the judge. But she decided she's going to see him. And he didn't do anything, and so she comes into the office one day and says, the secretary wants to see the judge. And believe me, the secretary said, you can't see him. He hasn't come in yet. And then she sits in the outer office, and the secretary said, well, it may be several hours. She said, I don't care, I'll wait. She sits out there, and two hours go by, and finally the door opens, and here comes the judge, and he walks in. And she makes a beeline for him and begins to talk, and he just keeps walking. And he says, see my secretary, and opens the door to his inner office and goes in. And so the secretary said, you just, well, leave. He's busy. He won't be able to see you. She said, I'll wait. So she waited. The secretary smiled because the judge wasn't going to be able to see her that day at all. He was busy. And so the woman just sat there, and the secretary thought, well, she'll leave when she gets hungry. 
And so finally the judge called in and says, Is that woman still out there? He said, Yes, she's still there. Oh, he says, Then she'll leave and she gets hungry. The secretary went back, and in another couple hours she called. She says, Wait a minute. Wait a minute. Said she brought her lunch, and she's sitting out here munching it. The judge says, Oh, my, and I have a luncheon engagement. He said, I got to get out of here some way. So it goes down a fire escape. Well, you know, he does that for several days, and finally it, it gets around that the judge is going down the fire escape. And that doesn't look good for a judge to go down the fire escape to go to lunch. And they think maybe he may be up to something. Finally, he says, Well, I just have to see that with her. He's not interested in it. But just because she kept on. Now, the whole thought is this. God's not an unjust judge. You don't have to just knock the door down. Really, you don't. But don't faint. Just persist in prayer. That's what he's saying. And it's not the length of your prayer. Paul uses a very wonderful expression. And I'd like to pass it on to you because we need this kind of help today. And this is something that all of you can do to help us and help yourself for that matter. It's over in Romans, the 15th chapter, verse 30. Listen to Paul. He says, Now I beseech you, brethren, for the Lord Jesus Christ's sake and for the love of the Spirit, that ye strive together with me in your prayers to God for me, that I may be delivered from them that do not believe in Judea, and that my service, which I have for Jerusalem, may be accepted of the saints. Now, that's what he asked them to pray for. But he says that ye strive together. And you know what that word strive really means? Well, it's the word that we get our word agonize from. And that's exactly what it is. You see, to agonize in prayer, that doesn't mean the length of your prayer. It's the depth of your prayer. It's not the words, but the feeling that's back of it. My, this is the way that Moses prayed. It's the way Paul prayed. And it's the way we should pray today. That widow sure was persistent, wasn't she? And God's no unjust judge. And you can afford to just keep going to him in prayer. And if you really mean business, you're going to move the arm of God one way or another. And he may make it clear to you that he's not going to do the thing exactly as you want it done, but he's going to hear and answer your prayer. And that's the reason I think we ought to just lay hold of God in a very definite way today about these things that concern us, that we feel deeply. And as you look about you today, friend, don't be discouraged. Don't faint. Please don't faint. Pray. That's what we're to do in days like this. Have you prayed about the situation today? Have you prayed really for the President of the United States? Doesn't make any difference who he is. Pray for him, because he's making a lot of decisions that affect us today and have to do with the climate in this country and abroad. Now, he gave another parable here. It's a parable about a Pharisee and a publican. He spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. And you'll never get anywhere praying like that, by the way. A great many people pray down, you know, to other folk. They go to the Lord. They say, oh, brother so-and-so, he's in a bad way. He's departed from the Lord bring him back and bring this dear woman back and bring that. What about you? Pray for yourself, friends. We need to pray for ourselves, lest we be tempted. 
Ye that are spiritual, restore such a one, the spirit of meekness, lest what? Same thing happen to you. So we need to pray for ourselves, too. Now, here is the parable, and I think he drew it from real life, and I do not know who the publican is, but I think I know who the Pharisee is. We're going to come to him in the 19th chapter, and that's Zacchaeus. I think he was the publican that's here. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee, the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself. And I love the way the Lord Jesus said that, and I think everybody smiled. He prayed with himself. He didn't go into the, the temple to pray to God for anybody. He went into the temple to pat himself on the back and tell himself what a smart fellow he was. And if I may revert back to the nursery rhyme, he reached in his thumb and he pulled out a plum and he said, What a smart boy am I. That's the Pharisee. Now notice, listen to him. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus with himself, God, I thank thee that I'm not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. Believe me, in my book, he's a bigger sinner than all this crowd that he listed here. And he's worse sinner than the publican. That's what our Lord is saying. And notice what he did. He's a religious phony, by the way. And he went through religious exercises. He says, I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. Oh, is he a nice boy. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God be merciful to me, a sinner. And that poor publican stood away off. And actually, he didn't say, God be merciful to me, a sinner. You see, when that man was a publican, he couldn't go to the mercy seat in the temple. That was denied him. He had no part there. He was shut out from it. And what he's saying to God is, Oh, God, make a mercy seat for me, a poor publican, to go to. And we're going to find out the Lord did just that thing, and he told a publican about it, and it'll be Zacchaeus. And I'll go in more in detail when we get over to the 19th chapter, and we're going to be there, by the way, next time. But here is the contrast between these two. And he asked the question, I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other, for everyone that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbled himself shall be exalted. And I suppose the biggest stumbling block that all of us have is ourselves. I think the greatest hindrance today to being saved is self, because the man thinks he's good enough to be saved and he doesn't need to be saved. And the greatest hindrance today to Christian service is the reason God doesn't use a great many talented people today. To begin with, he never gave them a gift that they think they've got. They have arbitrarily attempted to use a gift. Now, I know a woman that wants to sing. She's determined to be a soloist. A young woman, she's taken music from about everybody. And I don't know much about music, but I know one thing, she can't sing. And yet she persists in it. And she feels like she's got a wonderful voice. And she doesn't have. And may I say that she could serve God some other capacity. I don't know what it would be, but she certainly could, because she is a Christian. I think God's given her a gift. But that gift just does not happen to be singing. 
You see, Lord, I'm a singer. Now, I want you to help me out. Or, Lord, I'm a preacher. I want you to help me out. Well, Lord, it's not that. Lord, I'm a sinner. (laughs) Help me out. Show me what you want me to do. That's the important thing. That's the all-important thing. You see, self gets in the way here. Paul said that he saw within his flesh there was no good thing, and that what he wanted to do, he didn't do. Who got in the way? The devil? No, Paul got in the way. That old nature that we could label Saul, you see. What a marvelous thing that he does here. And then our wonderful Lord here. Oh, isn't he wonderful in this chapter? I think he had them all laughing. (laughs) They all were laughing. It's wonderful to be with him. And notice now, children love to be with him. And they brought unto him also infants, that he would touch them. But when his disciples saw it, they rebuked them. Even the disciples said, Oh, don't bring the little children to them. But Jesus called them unto him and said, Suffer the little children to come unto me. Forbid them not, for of such is the kingdom of God. That is a tremendous thing. That little one dies in infancy. You can be sure one thing. Our Lord said that his, not his angel, his spirit is before my Father in heaven. He says here, Verily I say unto you, Whosoever shall not receive the kingdom of God as a little child shall in no wise enter therein. You remember he already said something about offending these little ones. And he said, It'd be better for you that a millstone was hung around your neck. You see, the little one will follow you. The little one actually thinks you're God. Do anything you want them to do. Has complete trust in you. God have mercy on you if you don't bring them the right way and bring them to God. He said, Suffer the little one. Let them come to me. Don't try to keep them from coming to me. And they would normally come to him. Oh, you say, but you say they have a fallen nature. They sure do. But you see, that little one (laughs) hasn't reached the age of accountability. And the only decision it can make is the decision that's suggested to it. That's the nature of the little child. And then the little one grows up and develops that little will of his own. Then that's when the trouble begins, is it not? Our Lord says, let them come to me. Now we have here the instance of this rich young ruler. And the Lord Jesus loved this man. May I say that it's another very wonderful story. And I'm just going to touch it for the simple reason. We've had it in Matthew and we had it again in Mark. And one thing that we'd like to say about this young man is that our Lord made inquiry about the young man's conduct. You know, the Ten Commandments are divided into what's known as the pietists, and the probatus. The pietus is a man's relationship to God. The probatus is a man's relationship to man. Well, the very interesting thing is, this is the life of this young man. And this life of this young man was a good life, by the way. He kept the part of the commandments that related him to man. And the very interesting thing is that this young man could pass on those first ones. But what about his relationship to God? That was his problem. He demanded that the young man put Jesus first. That's what he's saying. And he had riches, and he'd been putting those first. And he showed the young man the impossibility of man to save himself. You've got to give up everything and 
come follow me. And in spite of all of that, Jesus loved this young man in spite of the fact he would not follow him. And he'll love you. Well, who is that young man? I do not know who he is. It may be you today. I don't know. But he loves you. I do know that. And let me just read this. A certain ruler asked him, saying, Good master, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said unto him, Why callest thou me good? None is good save one that is God. Thou knowest the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not kill. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor thy father and the mother. And he said, All these have I kept from my youth up. And I say to you, he's a remarkable young man. But down here in his relationship to God, that's exactly what he did not have. All right, we'll go by that then. And we find again the Lord Jesus is announcing his death to his disciples in verse 31. He announces that. And then the blind man is healed near Jericho. We've had that before in both Matthew and Mark.